The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, and we are coming to you from the beautiful studios of WWDB AM860 here in Greater Philadelphia and streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And a reminder that these uh, shows are podcast on my website, uh, jewishsacredaging.com, and we'll be back with our first segment guest. Marilyn Haskell, who's going to sing us through uh, half an hour. But first, a word from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall. Founded on Quaker principles, Kendall provides independent living, assisted living, memory support, skilled nursing, and rehabilitation care for older adults in eight states. Whether you're looking for the intellectual and cultural stimulation of a college town or a big city, Kendall has a community for you. We are together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more, visit Kendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. And welcome back to our first segment here today on Boomer Generation Radio, and we welcome to the studio uh, Marilyn Haskell, musician, composer, drove all the way up to Philadelphia from Bowie, Maryland. So, first of all, congratulations at such an early hour doing that. And you made it. You I, made did. It. I did. You, you survived 95 and the Schuylkill Expressway, which in itself should give you a medal. I, I feel like I've accomplished something <laughs> you already. Have. You have. You have. You have. And you didn't even probably stop at the Chesapeake House or the Maryland House. No, I didn't. No. I came right on through. <laughs> so, Marilyn Haskell, uh, living at Collington um, in outside of Bowie, Maryland, Maryland, uh, CCRC, Continuing Care Retirement Community. You are a musician and a composer and um, has spent your life making music and bringing music to people and composing and writing uh, and in, in the church environment, correct? That's correct. Yes. So talk to me a little bit about um, what you, you, you are involved with creating um, and nurturing and continuing the, the role of uh, a group of singers and in the CCRC that you're working with, but really the focus is your, of your life is bringing music to people, uh, and you started through the church community, correct? That's right. Yes, I I've always been a church person. My parents were what I referred to as church hobbyists. If there was anything <laughs> going on at church, we went to it, <laughs> and um, so that's been pretty much my life. Um, I've changed denominations from my childhood, but. Uh, basically, I became an organist, choir director um, through college, and for almost all of my career, that's what I've done. So, what brought, what made you focus on church music as opposed to rock and roll, <laughs> or or something else? I'm very serious, seriously. Why why liturgical spiritual music? Because it was inbred in my family. Really? And yes, it was. Um, by the time I got to college, there was never a question but what I was going to go into music. And I started out teaching school, mm-hmm. but I always knew I would have a church job because that's oh, yeah. what you do. And um, so I had a church job, and 
after I taught junior high school for six years, I said, I've got to <laughs> That'll do drive s- you to church. <laughs> That's right. I said, I must do something else. Those seventh graders, they'll do it for you. You pray a lot. <laughs> I did. I did pray a lot. It increased my spiritual life significantly. But, um, it would, no, it was, it was really a career decision that I felt was right. And some people don't understand this, but, very much like pastors and and rabbis and so forth, one feels a call to this business. Mm-hmm. And that's what I experienced. And so I became a church musician. So I have to ask you, since you just triggered this in my mind, where, where do you find God in music, in the church music? Oh, absolutely. How? Um, as a reminder, uh, a friend of mine has just written an article, and he used a phrase... Uh, when when one sings, you sense God's pleasure. Hmm. And I've thought about that, and I suppose it's where your mind will naturally go if you like music and you like singing, and you are religious or spiritual, you will you will go there. That's what you will feel. Music, I mean, music in, is very spiritual, is it? Regardless, I mean, I don't. Even something like a, as, as non-churchy as something like heavy metal or something, there is something that happens to the body, is there not? And to the mind. And oh. the, I mean, they've done brainwave studies, yes. the power of music. Yes, and hormone studies and all kinds of things that um, uh, one of my teachers, Alice Parker, says that when people sing, they communicate. They send out like a web of communication, these sort of tentacles that connect with each other. And it's a, an emotional thing. And for those people that that are spiritually grounded, that becomes part of their spirituality in, in making those connections with people. It's not only the visual connection you make with someone, but it's also something that the brain does, something that the... <laughs> One's aura, if you want to talk no, about no, that, connects um, with other people. So it's a communication. And it's the it's, I, I guess, with other than speech and maybe before speech, the most ancient form of of communication. Yes, there's a there's a writer who's written a really curiously titled book. Um, Stephen Miffin, I think, is his name, and he's written a book called *The Singing Neanderthals*. <laughs> mm-hmm. And basically, it's uh, he makes a very good case that speech began as a kind of pitched communication. So the voice went up and down in communicating between people before there was language, and so he equates that with with music that that happened before we actually spoke words and, and learned to communicate that way. And that's carried, I mean, the, through church music, liturgical music, I, I know it varies from culture to culture. Except, well, wait a minute. Let me ask you a question. Chris. Before we went on air, you were talking to me about that you spent some time climbing mountains in Nepal or whatever. <laughs> but, I, I didn't climb a lot, but I was in Nepal, yes. <laughs> okay, but there, there – the music, the liturgical music, and I know very little about, you know, Southeastern Asian religious music, but it's, I mean, it's a different style than Western, uh, religious music, but it still carries that same, uh, chanting, melodic, almost, uh, meditative quality, or, or doesn't it? Yes, it does. It, 
it's a little harder for Western ears to hear. Um, I've also been to Ethiopia, and it's the same thing. It's a very different sound, but you allow yourself to listen to it and try to hear the things that are similar to what you know. And very soon you begin to make those kinds of connections between what you do that's considered music and chanting and what they do that's considered music and chanting. And, and what is there similarity between if you, if you were able to take a magic carpet ride between Nepal and Ethiopia and, uh, Germany and United States, just for the, just for this and, and go into the various religious musical experiences. Is there something in common? Well, yes. Uh, other the, than it being music. Well, the basic, the basic change in pitch, in volume, uh, in the desire to communicate something beyond the words on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, words on the page don't communicate anything. You can read them as you read words on page, but music on the page is very static and you cannot, um, you cannot make an impression on anyone else with the music until you sing it, until you perform it. And, and it's that what I spoke of as the web of communication that happens once you lift the music off the page and sing it or play it or whatever. As as the liturgical music that you're involved with reflective of the culture that it emerges from, because I know in our tradition, the Jewish tradition, uh, the role of the cantor and the chanting of various liturgical mu- music pieces is very, very much a reflection of the host culture where a community lived. Is the same thing there? With, with yeah. Well, yes. There are there are various levels in various different churches uh, as to what what the culture of the music is that is used. Um, there are there are congregations. Uh, my Faith base is, is Episcopal, uh, and there are some churches in the Episcopal tradition that use ancient chanting hmm. almost exclusively. Really? There are others that, um, have moved on to more contemporary sounds, um, and something in between. <laughs> and the less liturgical churches, um, go even further in that direction. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I just, you just triggered a memory of, uh, when I was doing my doctoral program, I was assigned by my thesis advisor to attend a mega church because yes. I, cause I was doing some stuff in comparison anyway. And my, my buddy and I, he lived in Dallas. We went one morning on Sunday morning many years ago to Preston Woods Baptist Church. And, um, at that time they sat 5,000 people. They're up to 10,000 now. But they had a 100-piece band mm-hmm. with a fantastic lead singer worthy of Broadway. Indeed. <laughs> and their their basic <clears throat> service, quote-unquote, was was this band almost playing for 45 minutes of the hour and 15 minutes. And then the preacher preached. But the, the music was – that's what they people came for, uh, to make a long – to make a – you know, a very quick judgment. Well, it's true. And I mean, in almost any church, if it's a good music program, people will tell you that it's being, 
Uh, it's what's drawing people. You know, places like the Brooklyn Tabernacle, the, I mean, people go there to, to sing and listen to the choir. Oh, no, that's even an art tradition. There's a congregation I served uh, for a while here in South Jersey that they, they're a musical congregation. If you tell the people that the choir is going to be singing, the, the synagogue is packed. Mm. Yes. Uh, uh, if you say it's just a regular Friday night service, ho hum, you'll <laughs> have no problem getting a parking place. But <laughs> it's a very, very that's their tradition. That's their yes. That's their signature. Yes. Um, so here's my w- one question before we d- we take a break for Kendall. And, and since I'm in that in the, in this this uh, camp, um, I can't sing, you know, but I love music. How do you tell people just sing? How do you, how do you convince people that even if you, you know, I can't carry a tune, uh, Marilyn, but I really enjoy music. There, th- is that wrong? It's not wrong. I, I ignore it. You, um, oh, okay. I, <laughs> I ignore it. Um, I tell people when I teach them how to get people to sing, I t- tell them that basically you're going to outwit them. You're go- <laughs> they're not going to know they're singing. Uh, That's so cool. And so my my first instruction when I walk in front of a group that I want to sing, I will say, listen and repeat after me, and then I sing something. And before they can think about it, they they respond, which I don't know why they do, but they do. Yeah. So. It's the gift. I, I don't know. Uh, no, I no, guess so. No, you do. That's a gift. That's a gift. We're speaking with Marilyn Haskell, musician and composer. Uh, and when we get back from this break, uh, from our friends at Kendall, we want to talk about what you're doing, what the choirs, um, and a couple of programs that you've been involved with and, and just the power of, of what you do and how you do it and its impact. And we'll be doing that back with Marilyn right after this message from our friend at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approaches to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Welcome back to our first segment on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio, coming to you from WWDBAM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia and streaming live on WWDBAM.com. Marilyn Haskell uh, from the Collington Kendall community in Mitchellville, Maryland, which is outside of D.C., um, you've been involved uh, with the, the one program called Music That Makes Community. What, what, what is that or what was that? It's an organization that was started in a church in San Francisco. And they were doing a service in the evening by candlelight. And they realized that they couldn't see the music. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so they decided that they needed music that you didn't have to look at to sing. So they asked some of us to come together and to write some music that would be able to be taught without anybody looking at printed music. And so we did that and we published a book with it. And then we said, gosh, we're going to have to teach people how to, how to teach this, how, how to actually do it. 
So we've started uh, workshops and conferences that teach people how to lead people in singing this way. And our belief is that singing does create community, um, partly because you look at people when you sing without printed music. You can look around the room. You can get a sense of what everyone else is doing. And we also believe that there is a person who leads the music, but then the person who leads the music gets out of the way and the group takes over the control of the music. Uh, so the, the, um, I imagine in your experience leading all these choirs and, and now starting, um, with the group of singers in your, in your CCRC, you've seen people transformed. Yes. So, can you give me one example of how somebody sitting in a choir or a group that you've led, you know, is coming there and all of a sudden in the process they become a different person? The, the one that comes to mind was a comment from someone who was attending a service in which I was leading the music in New York, um, at St. Paul's Chapel. And I would start the service. It was my job to get things going, and so I sort of warmed up the crowd by teaching songs. And at St. Paul's, the congregation is made up of 95% um, international visitors. And so there were people there from all over the world would only be there once. A woman from Ireland came up to us after the service and said, you know, if church was like this all the time, I'd go. Yeah. But she was referring to the music and how it how it made her feel a part of this congregation, even though she had never been there before and would never be there again. Mm-hmm. But she understood what our goal was, which was to incorporate everyone into a worshiping body. In, in some of the material we I looked at before the show that you sent, you, you use the phrase that you're a song animator. Yes. What 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 is that? It's a very interesting <laughs> phrase. Being, I'm a song animator. Now you don't draw like cartoons of songs. No, right? no I don't. I wish I could. Uh, no, an animator is someone. Who, the, the song is out there, and my job is to help people catch the song and be a part of it. And so it's partly my energy level. It's partly my my trickery of getting people to sing, <laughs> but it's um, it, it's something that's outside of me. It's beyond me. Unpack that a little. What, what do you mean? Well, is it spiritual? Is it, it, well, is it, it is it, partly spiritual, and it's partly. Gosh, I, don't, I I've not thought about how to say this. Um, I just saw a movie called Songcatcher. And it's about Appalachia, which is where I grew up. And this woman went in the turn of the century to collect the songs that people were singing just because that's what people do in right. the mountains. And the phrase song catcher made, made me think about the fact that the song is out there in this stratosphere in the atmosphere in this room in you know out there on the freeway and and so forth and the only thing we can do is help people learn to find it 
because everybody is essentially a musician on some level, whether it's just listening or participating or writing or or whatever. And and my job as an animator is is to help people see where that song is and grab it. Where did you grow up? Um, in West Virginia. Really? Where in West Virginia? Oh, a little town called Pennsboro, 1,600 people. And so I, th- I actually think I have seen that movie, Songcatcher. And yes, if it's the movie have. I'm thinking of, <laughs> it really is, talks a lot about the, 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 the real Americana grassroots music that has stemmed from the mountains that in many ways gave rise to, um, bluegrass, country. Yes. yes. And very earthy. Came from, a lot of it came from Ireland and Scotland. That that was the people that settled those mountains. Right, the they brought a lot of their yes. stuff over with them. Yes, and the what, what this woman was doing, she made the connection between um, English folk songs that she knew, and and the fact that they were being sung in the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, and couldn't figure, and then, you know, she began to trace historically, well, my grandmother came over or whatever. There was a 60 Minutes piece a, lo- a while ago. I, you just triggered this in my mind where somebody either in the Smithsonian is trying to collect all this native music, all this Americana music, you know, um, in, in the Smithsonian before it gets lost as these generations yes. die out. Yes. Yeah, What's, this woman was doing it actually on recording cylinders. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I, I, I'm, I have a funny feeling that this, that what, this movie and this thing I'm thinking about from this 60 Minutes thing may have sort of like coalesced. What, what's your favorite kind of music? And you're just cruising in the, when you're driving home today and you pop on, you know, a CD or satellite radio or something. What do you, what, what do you listen to? Wow, it depends on my mood. Yeah. <laughs> I hate I hate people to ask me what my favorite music is because I don't have one. I'm very eclectic. Good. And uh I listen to everything from from jazz to bluegrass to classical to choral to uh ethnic cultural I love teaching world music. Hmm. And so uh, it's um Again, it's the it's the song that's out there that we are all part of. So why wouldn't I like it? You wrote um, that music and what you do can liberate communities' spiritual life. Yes. What does it mean? It means that when people sing together, they have a different level of commitment to each other. They... Um, they care for each other in a different way because music engenders a, an emotional response and it's very difficult to be angry with each other if you're singing together. Um, you'll suspend that. It also, uh, in a community like Collington and people who are aging and some of them losing their memory and, and, faculties and so forth, it helps them um, connect with each other even when that is not possible in other ways. There's a there's a program that's called Alive Inside and mm-hmm. it's for de- dementia people. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's it's wonderful because they program iPods 
with the music that the person had listened to when they were younger. Right. We interviewed uh, sometime in 2016 the gentleman who created that. Yes. And it's uh, and it was through there that we learned, which I did not know, that the part of the brain that is the last to just leave is the part of the brain that processes music. Yes. And that's why this program is so successful. Yes, and it's um, something that I am sorry that I learned too late. My mother had dementia, and when she had had just about lost all of her remembrance of me, I could have sung the old hymns that she loved with her. Didn't even occur to me. Wow. Which is unfortunate. So... I've got to make up for that somewhere. <laughs> so in the, in, the, in the one or two minutes we have left in this segment, tell me about um, your work, Collington Singers. Collington Singers is a, a choir that's been going at Collington almost since it began. It's been going about 30 years. And there was one director, and she recently retired, and so I volunteered to take over the choir, which I've just done. I've had uh, two rehearsals now, <laughs> and <laughs> we have about 50 singers, um, and we can do four-part music, SATB, and some people don't read music, and so I tend to do music that is, uh, they can learn by rote. I sing it, they sing it back because we, in, we imitate, um, each other in doing that. And then the other people who read will help them learn what we have to sing that's written down. So I'm hoping that it will appeal to both kinds of singers, what I call natural singers and then trained singers who can read. So it's a it's a very rich experience, and people so far seem to be having a good time doing it, which is paramount for me. And this is just general music; it's not just uh, liturgical music. It's, oh uh, no! As a matter of fact, it's um, I'm having to, to go find uh, secular music so that we can do it because we we have so many different um, faith based uh, programs at uh, Collington that. I will do some sacred music to represent that, but most of it will be secular. Broadway show tunes. Yes. And, yeah. Yes. Old, old folk tunes, all kinds but of things. But that's fun. I mean, that's, that, it also triggers lots of memories in people. So I'm sure that's a lot of fun. And I know you enjoy it because people can't see it, but Marilyn's <laughs> face is all lit up when she talks about singing and music. So Marilyn Haskell from, um, the Collington Kendall community down near Washington, D.C. in Bowie, a musician and composer. Thank you very much for, first of all, for driving all the way up here to have this conversation. And, and I really appreciate it. And this is great. This is a, a real, as you said before, this is a calling. It, it really is a calling for you and uh, on a very high spiritual level. Well, thank you. This has been a delight, and I, I love talking about it, and um, thank you for asking me. Well, no, thank you for, for coming, and I wish you continued good luck in, in, in that community, and just sing well. Keep keep on singing. I, I thank mean, you. As you said about music, you know, transcends uh, ideology, so I had this vision automatically, if, if you could pull this off. Uh, with the new administration, maybe getting all the Congress together, one big <laughs> choir, and maybe they'd all learn to get along as they I'd sing. I'd love it. I'd love it. Of course, they'd probably have to, <laughs> a year's worth of committee meetings to decide what song to sing, but that's another story for another time. Marilyn, first of all, drive safe. Thank you very, very much. Uh, we'll be right back with our second segment here. We're going to shift gears a little bit. 
and move from music uh, to a conversation with Mark Dan from Compassion and Choices about uh, this spate of legislation around the country of choice and dying legislation and talk a little bit about the impact of that uh, on our generation and um, and the future. But first, a little retro, uh, I think, for kind of a cloudy day here in greater Philadelphia. See if you can remember this one. This is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. 
This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approach to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Welcome back to our second segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio, coming to you from the studios of WWDB AM860 here in Greater Philadelphia, and streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And we are very pleased to welcome to the microphone for our second segment, Mark Dan, uh, the uh, Federal Affairs Director of Compassion and Choices. Mark, are you there? Yes, I am. Good hey, to be here. good to see. Good to hear from you. Good to good to hear from you again. How how are things in Washington today? All everybody getting excited? Uh, yes. Uh, there's a lot of different emotions that are happening in around the city. Um, but uh, we are expecting a large crowd uh, for the inauguration, and then also for the uh, women's uh, march uh, the day after. So there's going to be a hub of activity yeah, I, in, I, around I, the capital. Yeah, I saw something in the paper this morning that hundreds of thousands of people are expecting are expected for both events and. It's probably probably a good a good weekend to get out of town, I guess, if if you're concerned about that. Anyway, Mark, welcome. Compassion and Choices. Um, yes. For those people who are not aware of what Compassion and Choices is, what what is Compassion and Choices? What do you do? Okay, well, um, Compassion and Choices is the oldest and largest um, organization that is designed to improve care and improve uh, patient-centered care at the end of life. So a lot of people may know us from our work uh, that advances the aid and dying laws, but we also have a robust federal program, which I'm, um, which I lead. Uh, we also have our end of life choices consultation program. And um, so if your uh, listeners have any questions about their legally available options um, at the end of life, uh, they can simply call our 1-800 number, 1-800-247-7421, and uh, we can answer any questions that people may have. We have our consumer campaign, um, which is designed to put uh, tools in the hands of people who can, t- uh, so they can work with their healthcare professionals and their loved ones to talk about how they want to spend their time uh, uh, with their with the remaining time they do have left and how it can move forward. And then we also have our um, legal affairs department. So if people have um, an advanced directive that wasn't honored, uh, by all means, please give us a call. We'd uh, love to talk with them. And what's the website, Mark? www.compassionandchoices.org. And it's uh, compassion and A&D choices.org. So Compassion and Choices emerged um, really uh, I think it's safe to say, if I remember correctly, from the old old uh, discussions uh, 20, 30, 20 years ago on assisted suicide and uh, really has morphed and evolved, as you, as you pointed out, into a much larger, more comprehensive mm-hmm. educational advocacy type 
type of approach. Your your job as as uh, federal affairs director translate that into um, into uh, uh, Delaware Valley, South Jersey English. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, what, uh, you know, you're not in charge of affairs for the federal government, but you're in charge of lobbying are you an advocacy person promoting um aid and dying legislation on a federal level what do you do okay well i think with everyone here and whether it's our 65,000 volunteers and uh 45,000 donors uh most of whom uh 45,000 donors who give below $250 a year um my my story is very personal of how this all began and how this all works together and I think I may have shared this with you um, earlier, but um, it, my story is with through my great uncle and my grandmother, who uh, you knew. And my great uncle Irv, he was sick and he had cancer and he lived in Florida and he wanted out. So he went out, he purchased a gun, and he shot himself. And that was extraordinarily jarring for our family. Um, and there were all sorts of emotions of, that were around that. And in contrast to my grandmother, who you knew, she um, set out, these are the treatments I want, these are the treatments I don't want. And it was a really tough conversation to have, but she was able to achieve a very peaceful death. It aligned with her own ideals and values. And um, it obviously, I do miss her an awful lot, and I miss her every single day. But I think the... We, I move forward with knowing that she did everything she wanted to do. She lived her life how she wanted and how she saw fit. And that certainly created a very, very lasting um, memory with me. So when the opportunity came to work and help out with Compassion and Choices, originally I was the campaign manager in New Jersey, and we started moving forward uh, that aid and dying law. And the aid and dying law is the right for a mentally competent, terminally ill individual to request a prescription from their physician to hasten the dying process. So it's someone who is um, who is going to die sooner rather than later um, as well. And then um, that went well, and Compassion Choices asked me if I could um, supervise campaigns that were happening uh, in the Northeast, whether it was in Maryland, um, or uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, uh, New York, uh, help out in the California initiative. And then an opportunity came up in the federal uh, desk. So with the federal uh, work we do, it's um, we're not a federal aid and dying law really just isn't in the cards. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, said that it should be a matter for the states, and we are moving forward our state-by-state strategy with the aid and dying laws. However, we're working with a number of legislators on bipartisan legislation uh, that seeks to improve patient-centered care at the uh, at the end of life, and also can we work with Medicare um, as well to see what we can do with um, making those healthcare practices more uh, centered around the patient and what the patient wants, uh, rather than what a provider wants. So let's dispel a myth right right away, because in the popular press. Um this appears all the time. In your advocacy and the work of uh, aid in dying, or what I call choice in dying legislation, is this assisted mm-hmm. suicide? No, it's not. Um, we think uh, that's um, a horrible misnomer. This is when we're the people we are talking about 
is where death is imminent. Um, it's it's very much coming. There really there aren't any options for other people um, to. Uh, there aren't other options. Where living really isn't an option. And uh, as you've said, and I've taken this to heart on many occasions, is sometimes at the end of life we have to decide between options that are sad and what is um, options that are sad, and where and how we can move forward in that uh, situation. So no, we don't look at this as um, a suicide in any way, shape, or form, and um, that this is about patient choice and empowerment. So how do you how do you counter the rather significant uh, force of saying, you know, how could this is life is sacred and has to be continued no matter what, even though uh, in many traditions, uh, the role of pain and suffering is is not condoned. Uh, and there's medication, as you know, that really can alleviate a significant amount of pain uh, at the end of life. But how do you counter that uh, some of that negative reaction of saying what you're doing is wrong? Uh, you're you know, it, it, the slippery slope. Well, if we allow people to make this uh, decision, it's only a natural step for other people. We'll get rid of the infirmed or the mentally challenged, et cetera. Et cetera. I'm sure you've heard this. Oh yes. Um, well, I think uh, let's look at what's happening across the country. And so one one thing is that. We have popular support on our side, and roughly uh, 60, 70, again, closer to 70% of all Americans do support uh, having access to aid and dying. You, uh, within many folks, think about especially in uh, with uh, within many folks uh, in the religious community, is that a recent study conducted by Lifeway Research, which is a Nashville-based evangelical research firm that specializes in survey about faith and culture and matters that affect churches, show more than half of all Christians, 59%, Catholics, 70%, Protestants, 53%, uh, and those make of other religions um, agree with uh, having a right to aid and die. So I think you do see that uh, what is happening in with people who are who have a loved one who is um, or someone who is going through that process, I think it hits very close to home. And so we are seeing that the population is ahead of um, legislatures. It's ahead of uh, some faith-based leaders. And what and also um, we do have a lot of support amongst uh, the faith-based community uh, as well across the country. The um, I I. I the challenge well let me let me rephrase this is in your experience since you have a sense now of a of a more national perspective um how much of this is being driven by uh the baby boom generation because my my sense is that this is a generation that we we've tried to control things from the time we began our activism in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. and now this is just the next logical step of trying to say we don't want people telling us how to die. We are going to control even our own end of our own life. Are you seeing this, or is this totally off the wall? No, I think you are seeing a strong level of support from the, uh, the baby boomer generation, and you're also seeing this across multiple generations. Um, I'm kind of in that Gen X, um, uh, Gen X, Gen Y uh, millennial bubble on the border, and also more millennial support. 
and their uh, support. So you see support for this across people, people who have seen a parent, people who have seen a grandparent or a loved one. Everyone has been touched by this issue as well, and people are realizing that the current options that are available to them at the end of life are insufficient. I, I my research in this and both uh, the New Jersey bill and also having appeared on panels and and stuff with mm-hmm. with people from other parts of the country specifically, I remember one at, at a synagogue in uh, out in Portland with I think mm-hmm. some of the people who drafted the Oregon bill. My 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 reading of this is that that as people get these prescriptions, the majority of people who get the prescriptions mm-hmm. do not use them. Is that correct? Oh, uh, it, it's not the majority of people who request prescription. About a third of the people who re- um, request a prescription do not use them. Uh, so it's for people uh, who want to have an, an insurance against the worst. Um, and it allows people the peace of mind to move forward. One thing that I think about a lot is that about 90% of the people who uh, do engage the aid and dying law in Oregon are enrolled in hospice and palliative care as part of uh, pieces of legislation that people, that doctors are required to to talk about all their end-of-life options, including uh, hospice and palliative care. So people are getting really are getting good information about what is available to them, and for some people they don't need the uh, the medication, and that's um, certainly uh, fine. And again, this is about personal choice and empowerment. I think it's important to also stress because you alluded to this before in the in the states that have passed this legislation. Um, you use the frame the phrase mentally competent. There's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through. Are there not? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just not for any. I just can't say I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. There really are restrictions and guidelines and um, parameters that a person has to go through before a physician can write that prescription. Am I am I correct on that? That is correct. In most in most of the states. Um, so again, with there's more than 55 million U.S. citizens uh, who live in six states where medical aid and dying is authorized. So that's about one in six Americans. So in November, Colorado joined Oregon, Washington, Montana, Vermont, and California, and when voters overwhelmingly support by 65 percent the Colorado and the Life Options ballot initiative. And one of the things in there is that is are there are a fair number of safeguards in the in the pieces of legislation. There has never been, in the 30 years of cumulative history, there has never been a single case of malfeasance, abuse, malpractice, anything along those lines. In most, in most cases that you do need a, um, you do need a oral, uh, for, the patient needs to make an oral request, a written request, authorized by two physicians and by two witnesses. Uh, in, and there's also, in many cases, a 50-day, a 15-day waiting period, as well. And you're seeing people who um, this is a very thoughtful process. This is a process where the patient has control through the entire, uh, in, throughout the entire duration, uh, and is always empowered uh, as well. Could you just give us a real quick, because um, I'm conscious of time too. 
for our particular geographic area, what the status is of Pennsylvania, Delaware, and New Jersey? Are there? I know the Jersey bill is supposed to be read back into the Senate, I think, soon. Or, but Pennsylvania and Delaware, is there any such legislation pending? There is one. Um, we are expecting one to be uh, sponsored uh, to uh, be sponsored and move uh, and to be introduced. We're not sure about uh, the if they will progress this year. We are hoping. Um, we are. Uh, we'd love to see them move forward on that. I think New Jersey, you are uh, looking to see a continued uh, presence as it moves through. Obviously, the governor is um, an impediment to uh, the law moving forward. Uh, as well, but um, I, I believe that uh, sooner rather than later, the um, people in New Jersey will have access to eight and nine. But but nothing right now in the hopper in Pennsylvania and Delaware. Um, we are we're uh, just in terms of it being introduced. I would Matt, uh should be coming pretty soon in this legislative cycle. In the work of compassion and choices, you you the. You work with other organizations favoring and, and encouraging families and individuals to, as they call it now, have the conversation, correct? To really begin talking about, mm-hmm. talk to me about how you're working with the conversation project or five wishes or, or other hospice and other, other organizations. This is very, very, very important stuff. Absolutely. Um, well, one of the, uh, thing, and again, as, pe- as people are having these conversations with their families, with their loved ones, with their medical providers, those are really good things. Uh, we're part of a coalition of, uh, called the Campaign to End Unwanted Medical Treatment, and our supporters um, uh, include the Center for Medicare Advocacy, uh, Medicare Rights Center, National Alliance for Caregiving, um, National Caucus and Center on Black Aging. And so, our, so what these organizations are doing is what can be done to empower patients uh, so they get, so people get the treatment they want, no more, no less. We're also moving forward, as I alluded to in the top of the program, our consumer campaign. And if uh, your listeners can go to www.truthintreatment.org, uh, they can find all sorts of tools uh, that they can use to have um, conversations about how they want to live and how they uh, want to spend their time. We're finding that as people um, having those conversations about what type of care do you want, what are your values, not only um, for an advanced directive, but because an advanced directive um, only takes effect when a person can't make the can no longer speak for themselves, but also to have conversations about what type of treatment do you want? Do you want some? Uh, do you want treatments that are more uh, set to? Um, that are more intervention, that uh, focus more on time um, available, or do you want other interventions that could focus more on quality of time and uh, allow you to do the things that you feel are important? So having those conversations we think are really important, and as people move forward, uh, really critical in having uh, and how people can spend their la- their time that they do have. You mentioned at the top of the show also that, Compassion and Choices is working um, to deal with this uh, slow slog of legislation focusing on patient-centered care. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's been some bills introduced on the federal level and I think also in several states. Could you talk a little bit about what those pieces of legislation are and what the focus is? Sure. I think um, in 
the last Congress that moved forward, you saw something very extraordinary, is that there were about nine bills or so that did pertain to improving care at the end of life. At the end of the 113th Congress, uh, you didn't really see many. So you've got some really good ones in there. Uh, most of them, again, are bipartisan natures. Um, so one uh, bill that we have endorsed, and you can check them out on our website under Compassion and Choices Federal Programs, would be the Independence at Home Program. Um, so what it allows uh, Medicare recipients to do uh, is it allows them uh, people to who have a serious illness to receive more primary uh, care and home uh, at home, uh, and automatically, I think when people have that type of care, they can at the home they do have more choice. They have more choice in terms of options that are available to them, and I think it makes a uh, level of care more personal. There are uh, other ones such as the Warner Isaacson bill, uh, which is the Care Planning Act, um, and it allows people to have more conversations with. Um, uh, when people are having a serious illness, it allows people to have those conversations with faith leaders, uh, healthcare professional teams, uh, family members and friends. It makes the rules easier on uh, developing, uh, making advanced directives and care planning documents easier to go into electronic medical records. So you are seeing that uh, folks in Washington uh, from both sides of the aisle are seeing the need to improve care at the end of life, and we're really enthusiastic about it. There was one bill called the Palliative Care Hospice and Educational Training Act that had over 200 co-sponsors, and we think um, most of these should be reintroduced uh, as this legislative season moves, moves forward. Which brings me to the, uh, one of the, the, the major questions. Um, mm -hmm. We're facing a new administration, and mm -hmm. uh, we've been told to expect uh, major changes in the ACA and the um, – in Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, um, how are you gearing up for what may very well be a major fight dealing with um, this choice in dying and uh, federal funding and education? Uh, it could be a rocky four years if I'm if I read the tea leaves right. Yeah, we're we're looking at a lot of different options. What we do know is that the uh, on the federal desk is that the D.C. Um, the D.C. did pass their own um, aid and dying bill uh, out by a margin of 11 to 2. It was veto, it's veto-proof. It was signed in by the mayor. However, all D.C. bills are able to be reviewed by Congress, and there is a disapproval resolution uh, that has been introduced by Congressman Weinstrup from Ohio uh, as well, um, by Ohio, and uh, in Ohio. So he... So Congress will be able to push back um, on these laws. We are uh, looking for our grassroots network, coalition partners, to move for, uh, push back against this. So you'll probably be seeing more about that as time uh, moves on. In terms of what um, is in the Affordable Care Act, uh, there are some very strong prov uh, provisions in there. So one of them, and the, this might get a little... Uh, DC speak, but okay. But you have about one minute to do it. Okay, so there are uh, there are some innovations that Medicare has been moving forward that have been uh, that have been from the um, Affordable Care Act, which is moving uh, the healthcare system with, uh, especially with Medicare, from more um, from more volume based to value based, and so those reforms have really have been helping to 
see a lot, uh, some changes in promoting a more favorable climate to have uh, more patient-centered care. And then we think those are positive developments. Do you think those uh, those developments will be under attack in the new administration? We're looking at uh, the proposals um, that are um, that are moving forward, and we'll be calling them with a lot of balls and strikes, and uh, talking with our members and seeing how those proposals could affect care at the end of life. Yeah. So, in other words, from what I'm he- <laughs> from what I'm hearing, and you're right, a little DC speak. From what I'm hearing, it's um, it's going to be a very interesting and uh four years and from what also i'm hearing from you and uh, is it that the advocacy groups like compassion and choices and other people who are concerned about uh end of life issues in medicine really you're going to have to organize and this is a, a major 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 program major problem major challenge for a lot of groups especially uh, boomers because it's really going to impact all of us anyway mark right. mark dan the federal affairs director of compassion and choices we have 30 seconds mark real fast the phone number and the website Okay, the phone number is 1-800-247-7421. You can go to www.compassionandchoices.org and volunteer, and we would love to have all of your listeners join us. Mark, thank you very much uh, for giving us your time, going over a lot of stuff in a very short amount of time. I really do appreciate it. Continued success. Good luck. Um, you're going to probably be uh, pretty busy in the next couple of years. Yeah, and, probably. Uh, yeah, you're not going to be bored. So <laughs> We will not be. So good luck, and thank you very, very much for agreeing to come on today and, and uh, sharing your knowledge and expertise here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. Continued good luck to all of you. Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you uh, next week week on Boomer Generation Radio. Stay safe, everyone.